Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Josh Adams. Hello. Mark Erickson. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood, devchat.tv. Just a quick shout out. If you're looking for, I have people asking for like t-shirts and mugs and stuff. If you want any of that that stuff, go to swag.devchat.tv and you can pick up all that stuff and more. But yeah, uh, I got all that up yesterday. So anyway. Your server's down, by the way, Chuck. Yeah, I set up the C name on the DNS and it doesn't seem to want to work. So yeah, I'm uh, yeah. By the time this goes live, it'll be up. So anyway, and it's on T Public. So if you go to T Public and look up C Max W, which is my handle on there, you can find all the stuff there too. But yeah, we have a special guest this week, and that is Devin Estes. Devin, do you want? Who's Devin? Yeah, how y'all doing? Doing all right. Do you want to give us a brief intro since you haven't been on this show before? You've been on Ruby Rogues a couple of times. Yeah, uh, sure. So my name is Devin. I am a programmer based in Berlin, Germany. I'm American, though. We've lived here in Berlin for the last three years. Uh, Before that, we were in California. And before that, uh, New York. And uh, yeah, I, for a while now, have been focusing mainly on Elixir. I have a Ruby background. But yeah, Elixir is my my uh, main language these days, and my my language of choice. So you might say you're all in on Elixir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. I uh, I did write a post a little while ago because uh, as a as a freelancer, I get inquiries every now and then, and especially people. Most most people knew me from the Ruby world, so I still get sort of Ruby inquiries. But I sort of have a rule that if I say something like more than twice, then I should just write a blog post about it, and then right. I can link someone to the blog post. So um, I, I wrote a post sort of explaining that I'm not really taking on new Ruby projects. That I love Elixir, and I don't really have the time in my life to devote to the Ruby stuff anymore. Like I kind of wish I did, but I, I don't. So I, I'm picking Elixir because I, I love it and I want to focus on that in the future. You know, it's funny because I, before we spoke, I'm like, I, I know him. I know him. Do I know him from Code Sponsor from before? But I, I see your name all the time. <clears throat> so I looked at in my inbox and I did a search for Devin, the way you spell your name. And I don't imagine there's a lot of Devin spelled D-E-V-O-N. So I did a search and immediately I got an email from uh, October 2017 on the changelog and Elixir Weekly on March 21st, April 18th, May 30th, July 22nd, August 9th. Like you're on all of those, which is pretty funny. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I mean, you're, you're in my head, man. well i i try and and write a bit i find it really helpful i mean funny enough i actually have a story about how writing a blog post shortly after this helped us fix a kind of gnarly persistent bug in benchy 
Um, like I just had to go through the process of like writing out what was going on and eventually just going through the process of writing it. It helped me really understand where this bug might be. And we ended up fixing it, which is great with some help from some folks on the Erlang mailing list, of course. But, uh, uh, you know, I like to write, I try and, and write once a month on like what I'm learning, what's cool, what's new in, in my world, what I've learned in, in my open source work and in my, my, uh, freelancing work. So, uh, yeah, I like to write and, and that's, I don't know, I, I guess people like, like what I'm writing, which is always nice. People get value out of what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, back in the day when I, when I had that same mentality, I would write a lot and I, and I actually attribute a lot of, um, my ongoing learning to, uh, to the post that I, well, at the time, a lot of what I was learning was because I was writing about it. And whenever you write something, you're like, okay, I can't sound like an idiot. So you got to make sure you cover everything possible and you make sure you know what you're talking about. And it's basically like doing a research paper. You know, Mm -hmm. you probably put in five times the amount of work than people expect that you do on these blog posts because you're, you're researching and you're understanding it. Have you, uh, have you found that your blog has provided introductions that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've indirectly at least had two contracts off of stuff that I've written or conferences that I've spoken at because when, I don't know, it's funny enough, I used to work in PR and marketing and there was a, a saying that um, the founder of the company I used to work for would say all the time. So visibility creates opportunity. It doesn't necessarily give you success, but it gives you opportunity. So, you know, by being a little bit more visible, it gives me more opportunity for more people to maybe reach out and be like, oh, yeah, we're looking for a freelancer and, uh, you know, let's see if this might work. So, yeah, I've had a lot of a lot of people get in touch with me either through reading stuff that I've written or uh, seeing talks that I've given at conferences or, you know, engaging with people on Twitter, stuff like that, that have that's really certainly helped pay the bills and uh, and also in a big way really helped keep me working mainly in Elixir recently, which is something that was sort of a goal of mine was uh, moving away from Ruby and moving more into Elixir, which, you know, two or three years ago was still a little tricky, a little, you know, I wouldn't be able to feel comfortable writing off all Ruby work and just saying I'm only going to do Elixir because uh, there wasn't really enough, you know, the language was still growing, the ecosystem was still growing. And also I didn't have much of a presence in the Elixir community. So I I wasn't confident that I could get the work, but now the language is mature and evolved. The ecosystem is mature and evolved. There are tons of companies using Elixir in production these days that need more developers and need more help. So now it's, it's a, it's actually a great time to be an Elixir freelancer, sort of at the the front of, of the coming gold rush, I think. I could see that for sure. I, I thought, you know, it, it's interesting when you choose a technology, sometimes choosing a technology is just as much about how easy it is to find resources to help support that as it is that if it's the right tech. I think Elm is a, a good example of that where Elm might be the ideal tech for front-end development. And I know, Josh, you have a strong opinion on that. A little um, bit. But but finding Elm developers is really hard, in, in as I understand it, and so, and it's still kind of a, one of those texts that are that are under the radar. And I think Elixir has been that way for a while. However, 
it's it's not becoming that way anymore. It's actually starting to become the new and improved Ruby or the new and improved. You still get the 10x the 10x productivity, but you're not held up by the uh, global interpreter lock and 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 you have the full native concurrent concurrency built in. I've definitely have seen that. Have you ever had issues finding work in Elixir? Not in the last year and a half. I've I've been pretty fully booked for the last year and a half. Uh, and that's, you know, it, a good part of your job as a freelancer is looking for work and developing contacts and meeting people and networking and stuff uh, and like writing and doing stuff like that just to stay visible. But I, I haven't had much much difficulty in finding work. Uh, the, there are definitely, I think, well, this isn't empirical. This is just sort of, uh, my, my anecdotal take on it, but from lurking around in Elixir Slack and talking to other people, either interested in the language or working the language, it seems like there are, there's currently more people looking to work full-time in Elixir than there are full-time Elixir jobs. And they're certainly not evenly distributed. That's another big thing. There's There are certain cities, it seems like, in certain countries in which Elixir is far more prominent than others. So there are a lot of people looking for remote jobs that you know may not be able to find them. I, I think there's definitely, there's a, a little bit of a market mismatch in, in where the jobs are located because like a lot of people that want, for example, like on-site developers in San Francisco cannot find Elixir developers. I was actually in San Francisco a couple of months ago and I went to their meetup there. And they they said like, we, we need more Elixir and Erlang developers because they actually do their meetup together, uh, Elixir and Erlang together, which I actually think is really great. But the, everyone there was like, we need to hire, we need to hire, we need to hire. And I was like, well, <laughs> I know dozens of great uh, Elixir and Erlang developers in France and Poland and South Africa that like you guys could totally hire if you want. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, they need to be in San Francisco. So there, there's a lot of great developers out there looking for work, and there are a lot of companies looking for developers. It's just not they're, – they're not really matching up these days, which is a little funny. But luckily, more people are turning remote, and I've, I've been a remote worker for six years now. So, yeah, it's, it's – for the companies that are doing remote, doing Elixir, they're, they're getting some great folks these days, which is great. There's a lot of talent out there, and there's a lot of people looking to work in Elixir full-time. I think a lot of people like me have sort of been bitten by the bug. Devin, I'd love to hear about kind of that transition that brought you from Ruby to Elixir. And and like, you know, writing a blog post that is kind of... It's like your stake in the sand, right? So mm-hmm. you're just saying, I'm making it public that I'm going to turn away a whole class of work, right? So that, that's, that's mm-hmm. not a small commitment. You know, it's a significant yeah. like stake. So I'd love to hear about like, what were the motivations where yeah. you felt like, you know, this is the path I want to go down. I'm, it's not just about money for me. If there's something else, there's something I want this path. I'd love to hear about that. Well, the more I wrote Elixir, uh, I'd say somewhere in like late 2016, it sort of clicked for me that like, this is the way I like to program and the way I like to think in general. After having learned Elixir, I looked back at a lot of the Ruby code that I wrote over the years. I was like, oh, well, this is just all like like Ruby-inspired Elixir. It's all it's all very heavily functionally inspired. That was this sort of a, a, a niche that I f- tried to fill in the Ruby world as well. I believed in that style of programming. I love dynamically typed functional languages. And Elixir is a really wonderful dynamically typed functional language. And to me, I just get a feeling of productivity and comprehension. Uh, I can work in the language very easily, especially as a freelancer. It's extremely easy for me to come into a project and be productive on day one. 
uh, I can pick off a little corner of a program and I don't need to understand the entire architecture and, and how, you know, these nine classes are related through inheritance. I can just look at a file and look at the functions and look at the type signatures. If people are nice enough to put type signatures on, which are really nice if you, if you drop some specs in there, but I can be really productive really fast, which for me makes clients happy. It makes me happy. And it just sort of fits the way that I think. And it fits the way that I like to write code. And, you know, there are other benefits. There are a lot of other benefits. But for me, if all of the other great things about Elixir and and being on the beam, if none of them were there, I would still probably prefer this style of writing code to the object-oriented style or to procedural style. I've played around with, with Go. I've used that in a couple projects and I've, I've done Ruby, I've done Python, I've done JavaScript. And the thing that is sort of head and shoulders spoken to me more than any of those paradigms has been Elixir and been, you know, Elixir and like functionally inspired Ruby. But if I'm going to write that kind of code, I might as well do it in Elixir where that's sort of the, the quote unquote right way to do it. Whereas what I was doing in Ruby there that's not necessarily, you know, it is a way in which you can use the language, but it is not the way in which the language was designed to be used. So yeah, I, um, I often got strange looks from, from my Ruby code once I started writing Elixir as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was funny. Like I was writing Ruby code that way before I was writing Elixir. I just sort of naturally gravitated towards that style of writing. And, and that always appealed to me that the, the way in which you can compose things together in small little chunks in the way, you know, you can see where everything is. I never liked to lean too heavily on, on inheritance. I was, uh, you know, just put little things together and compose functionality by essentially slapping together a bunch of lambdas. So, uh, you know, the, that always made me a little on the, the, the quirky side in the Ruby community, but it worked for me and I, I was really productive there and you know it was really easy to test my code there wasn't weird side effects happening everywhere but yeah for elixir the the number one thing for me is that it's a dynamically typed functional language and that just sort of fits with how i like to write code how i feel productive which for me is really important i like feeling productive i like feeling like i'm i'm good at what i do so it fulfills those needs for me in a big way uh but then i also feel very um confident in the direction and the future of the language. Um, one of the things that I always point out to people when they ask what I love about Elixir is I show them how many open issues there are on language. And there's never more than 30. It is, it is diligently and lovingly curated and maintained. And that cannot be overstated. Uh, that is so important to the direction and the future of the language and of the ecosystem is to have people shepherding the development and the, the, the future of the language as it's being, being taken care of. And I have complete trust in Jose and, and the whole rest of the core team to make good decisions. And I like the philosophies behind the language. You know, I, I prefer the explicitness. That's, a, you know, I don't mind typing extra characters. I paid for a fancy keyboard so my hands don't hurt. Like, that's not a problem for me. So I, I like a lot of those things about the sort of philosophy of the language, the way the language is, is uh, taken care of, the, the love and the work that goes into it is, is so important. And uh, yeah, to, that's another huge part of it is that and, and the community is, is very, very nice. I've had in the last couple of years, 
probably dozens upon dozens of hours of people from the core team helping me with problems, helping us fix bugs at Benchy, helping us implement features, working with them to fix their stuff. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of close interaction with the close, uh, with the core team and with the, some of the other contributors there. And it's just been a really wonderful, helpful, inclusive community. And, uh, the, those, those are really the biggies The the other stuff, frankly, it, it to me is icing on the cake. I know for so many people, stuff like the you know nine nines of availability and the speed and the concurrency primitives are the thing that make Elixir great to them. But there are honestly other languages that have that. Erlang being first and foremost among them. Elixir to me is a step above because uh, it, I believe in the direction of the language, the philosophy of the language, and the the community is built. Uh, I think those are all really, really important parts uh, of of being part of an ecosystem is, is taking those things into account. See, I obviously love Elixir. I mean, there's no question mm-hmm. about this. What do you not love about it? <laughs> so funny enough, today, I found my first thing in Elixir that I, I do not care for. Just today, I was reading some code. And I was, I, I, I knew that there was a super callback in def overridable. So if you override a function if you're implementing a, a behavior and you override, you can override it and then call the thing that's been overridden. And that is the only thing, the first thing that I found that I don't love, because I think it sort of violates that uh, explicitness because then you're calling super and you don't know, you can't like, usually when I'm working in Vim, I can just use star to see where that's defined. And I can't find where that function is defined anywhere in the file that I'm looking at. And that to me is like a little bit of a bummer. I have to go searching for a file which is something I had to do all the time previously, something I very rarely have to do these days to go searching for a file or a function definition. Maybe the tooling will evolve to the point where it's not a problem. But uh, that, that to me is the, the first thing that I didn't love. And there are, I don't know, there, there are, I think the community needs to get a little better in communicating use cases as well. One of the, and like the, the stuff you need to know, like, for example, when I was in San Francisco, I think it was in July, at their meetup, I was talking with uh, someone who was the VP of engineering in the company using Elixir. And they said that, you know, our like mid junior, mid-level developers all feel like they, they aren't using Elixir well because they're not using OTP in their Phoenix applications. It's like, no, they are. It's just all taken care of for them. Like that's abstracted away. <laughs> you get all of the OTP benefits. You don't need to care about that stuff because the Phoenix team has done a great job of abstracting over those. And, you know, you're getting, every time you get a request in, you're still spawning a new process to handle it. Like that's all happening. They don't need to do all of these extra fancy schmancy OTP things on top. Maybe they will need to later, but they shouldn't feel like they're not real Elixir, Elixir developers because they're not like keeping everything in a gen server somewhere. So I, you know, for the majority of my time in Elixir as a freelancer, frankly, the project that I just came onto late last week is the first time where Elixir is like really the only option because they have a need for both extremely high availability and extremely high throughput. Most of the other things that I've done could have easily been done in any other language that's turned complete, could have been done in Rails, could have been done in, in Django, could have been done in Node, but I just prefer for the Elixir. And you can do all of those things just as well in Elixir, if not better. And there's no shame or downside in that. If you're not using releases, if you're not using like OTP besides what's given you in Phoenix, 
you're not doing it wrong. You're still using Elixir right. Like there's still so many benefits to using the language, even if you're not power using the language. So I think the, the that's on the community side, one thing we could do a little better is sort of embracing the mundane and like the not so special. And, you know, I would love to see a conference talk of like, these are the four simplest applications that I wrote with Elixir and they turned out great. And like, we don't have 2 million users on a single connection or 2 million connections on a single server. And like, we have maybe six, six uh, concurrent clients at a time. And, you know, there's no GraphQL API. It's just a REST API. And it's really simple and it works really well. And it makes everybody happy. Like that would be a, a great story to share. So I think we need some more stories of, of that kind of usage of the language and, you know, embracing that a little bit more, uh, I think would be really helpful for both making people a little bit more welcome and also uh, spreading language adoption a little bit more. How are other uh, languages doing that? Or like, what, what can we actually do now to make that happen? Well, it's hard. And funny enough, this is something that I've spoken about recently with some of the other folks in uh, a project that I work on called exorcism.io, which is sort of like a, you know, a code practice platform. I, I don't know what the new um, official terminology is because they've just relaunched a whole new, new brand. It's actually an awesome new website. It all works so much better now. But the, some other languages, especially Ruby and JavaScript, I believe um, they embrace people who are completely new to programming, which is something that is, positions them uniquely to embrace very simple use cases. Like those people that are completely new to programming aren't going to be coming in and implementing like some, some raft implementation. Like that's not going to be their first job. They're not going to be jumping from like, working in a completely different career to like working on distributed systems problems and like distributed consensus protocols and, and like gossip networks. The, I'm not entirely sure if Elixir wants to go that route or if we're always just going to be having people where Elixir is their second or third or fourth language, or if they want to target people that have never programmed before and start doing, you know, like boot camp curriculum in Elixir or things like that. Um, it, I, kind of, a little I kind of think that that will come sort of naturally as the language grows a bit because there yeah. will be more people being onboarded and they'll kind of, I think, provide kind of the, the interim content, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a good deal of content in the language now, which is nice. But I, because a lot of the people that came to it early were using it because they needed it. A lot of the first content was stuff like that. It was stuff like Bleacher Report. Like we really needed to shave microseconds or like we really needed to go from like three nines to four nines of availability. The, the early adopters were the people that were looking for something like Elixir for years and found it and were like, oh my God, this solves all our problems. <laughs> and that was a lot of the first use cases. And I think that sort of set the tone for the language early on in its days. And I think you're, you're definitely right, Josh, that we start seeing people that choose just because they like this style of programming, not because they need, you know, a high, super high availability or super high uptime uh, or throughput. Um, you know, they're not going to come to it because it's a faster Ruby. They're just going to come to it because it's a nice language with a good community with a, a well-developed ecosystem that you can be productive in and, and 
you know, that just works that you don't have problems maintaining. I, I actually think one of the best things that we're going to have is, you know, four or five years down the road when we start seeing the legacy stories of like, we've had this application for six years now, it's been Elixir for six years and we're ranking new features just as fast as we were six years ago because it's easy to maintain. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash elixir. Well, boring is great. I love boring. Yeah, it makes a bad story. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to tell. Yeah, but trying to tell, it's hard to tell those stories in, in a non-boring way, but I believe it can be done. I trust that it can be done. And I also think that there will just be enough. You know, the programming is a very uh, chatty community. Programmers talk, and, and I have a feeling that once enough of those people start having those, start having those experiences, that the word will start getting out. So I, I think that's going to be sort of the next like tagline maybe for the language. People will stop thinking of it as a faster Ruby and start thinking of it as a more maintainable Ruby, maybe, I don't know, or maybe a more maintainable JavaScript. Maybe they jump from JavaScript over or who knows. But I think the, the long-term maintenance of applications is going to be one of the sort of major stories in, in four or five years. Uh, I mean, I recently jumped into an application that I hadn't seen that I wrote two years ago that I hadn't seen in two years. And it was as easy to jump into it as, as I, as if I had like finished writing it two weeks ago, it, it was so easy because of the experience of the language and because, you know, I took the time to leave myself documentation and type specs. It, it made it nice. Uh, but the maintainability and the, the flexibility of the language, I, I think, is going to be much easier in the long run, especially with larger systems. Um, and that's going to be a major, uh, a major uh, selling point for the language. Yeah, along those lines, I, I really like that probably 95% of the random projects or libraries that I check out have pretty good test suites. And so that makes it much easier to jump yeah. into them. Yeah, for sure. So Josh, you've had a lot of uh, experience over the years kind of helping push forward the um, the Elixir uh, ecosystem uh, through Elixir SIPs. Have you seen uh, a pickup from that? Have you seen it grow or has it kind of paled off a little bit? And, and how, how do you see the involvement? I'm sorry to like focus on you, Josh, but how do you see the your involvement in all of these different projects that you have driving forward, forward uh, the awareness? I'm not sure about how much I could say that I drive forward awareness, but uh, I've definitely seen the language growing. Like it tends to tends to double every year um, in terms of I run the Elixir user survey, which I'm still really late getting out the results from for last year, uh, since it's almost next year. And um, it it historically doubled every year. This time uh, there were not double as many respondents, but also if you look at like Elixir comp attendance, it seems to roughly double every year. And obviously that can't go on forever. 
Um, I think it's probably somewhat going to reach a plateau soon just because of the number of people that will move to go to a conference. But I'd say ElixirConf, as an example, grew very rapidly, way, way more rapidly than other. I, I tend to pay attention to evolving languages and Elixir is right on up there with the fastest growing in my experience in the last four years, at least. So Devin, tell us about the uh, project you have called Fast Elixir. So that came out of talk I gave at ElixirConf EU almost like a year and a half ago. So it was 2017, April 2017, where I was talking about some of the stuff that I learned working on exorcism and like looking at other people's code. And uh, that's one of my favorite things to do on exorcism is to look at other people's implementations. They give you all of these little like katas, little toy problems, and you solve it, push it up and get feedback. But you can also see everybody else's uh, implementations. I was talking about some of the cool elixir things that I'd learned looking at that. And as I was sort of, um, as I was going through and looking at these different implementations, I was also benchmarking them uh, using Benchy, uh, which is a a great benchmarking tool that me and a friend of mine here in Berlin, Toby, work on together. And I found, you know, given these are all the same problem, but some of them are drastically faster than others. And there's a project in Ruby called Fast Ruby, where you basically where, you know, these are three sets to do a thing. And one of them is like 35 times faster than the other. So, you know, it makes sense to use the one that's 35 times faster. Um, and no such thing existed. And one of my sort of calls to action at the end of my talk was for more people to share their stories, especially of, of failure. Failure is a, a great learning experience for everybody. Uh, the next talk I'm going to be giving is, is all about all of the things I did wrong in the last year working on Benji pretty much and all everything that I learned from it. It's a great... It's one of the great things about failure is you learn so much from it. Um, so I, uh, I had written some not very good, fast Elixir code in my day, and I decided to sort of replicate that fast Ruby, but with Elixir. So, you know, if there are two ways to do something and one of them is way faster, you should know, you know, it might be better to pick the faster one, especially in some cases it is enormously faster, like using the cons operator instead of concatenating two lists, especially as the lists get large, it's enormously faster. And then there are some other things that I had always heard people saying, like, 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 Etz is super fast, like Erlang term storage. It's super fast. I was like, well, how fast is it? I always hear people say it's fast, but I don't know how fast it is. So I compared that with the gen server and turns out, yeah, it is super fast, uh, at least for retrieving information. I can't say in general, but for a simple data retrieval, Erlang term storage is super fast. So stuff like that. And also, uh, one other thing I heard recently is someone uh, on a project said they didn't want to use spawn link because it's slower than spawn. Uh, so they were basically saying that they wanted to trade the, the supervision privileges for speed. And I was like, well, let's see. And it, it really isn't that much faster to use spawn instead of spawn link. So, you know, having that knowledge can help you write better code and, and putting it out there and making it available, hopefully, for everyone to share their the things that they've learned can help us all write better, faster Elixir together if we all sort of pool our knowledge and share those, those idioms and those, those things that everybody's learned in, in their work. So you mentioned your work on Benchy. I don't know if you wanted to discuss Benchy and what's been done recently and what's coming up. It's interesting what you've learned. Yeah, so Benchy is... A wonderful benchmarking library. The most recent thing that we did, which we're very proud of, is we've we finally got the measurement of memory consumption for a function down pretty well. 
there are some tiny caveats to that, which is, you know, it's only within a single process. So if your function spawns like 30 other processes to do some parallel work, we're not going to be able to capture all those other processes. So at this point, you know, we can't capture the accurately, we can't capture the memory usage of the whole function on the VM as a whole. So that's a little tricky, but within a single process, we can now accurately capture the memory usage, which was really tricky <laughs> because you can't turn the garbage collector off on the beam <laughs> for good reason. Like if you did that, you would almost instantly crash the beam. So uh, you can't do it. They don't let you do it, which makes measuring memory usage kind of tricky, especially in a concurrent environment because there's always stuff going on. The, the, uh, especially if you are on a multi-core machine, you could be running a function in one process and three other processes are getting some turns and in the scheduler and they are uh, bumping up the memory allocated to the, the virtual machine, to the beam, and it has nothing to do with the usage of the process you're looking at. So uh, we eventually found out an implementation of how to do it using um, a trace listener. So we, we set up a tracer to listen to garbage collection events and that gives you, basically, we, we force the garbage collection as frequently as possible to make sure, like, basically, we force a garbage collection and then start listening to garbage collection events, then run the function to listen to all of the garbage collection events that happen during the function. And then after it's done, force one more garbage collection and then turn the garbage collection tracer off. And that gives us our, our memory usage, which is, I, I think, we're the first ones to do that on the beam so it's accurately calculate memory usage of a function, which is something I really wanted to do for the nerves folks, because I imagine that memory is a thing they care about, especially if they're using some tiny little, like tiny, tiny little device somewhere that has like four meg of memory or something. I don't know, maybe some of these things have more than four megs of memory, but I'd imagine memory usage is a thing that they care about significantly. So being able to benchmark that and, and you know, optimize their code for what's important to them, uh, I thought was really important. And then another thing, after we were, we're getting close to 1.0, which is awesome, maybe another week or two to update some formatters and then push out a deprecation release and then, then we can get 1.0 out. But after 1.0 comes out, I really want to do a uh, reduction counting uh, benchmark, which I think we can use for like properly accurate uh, performance testing. Because right now, for most performance testing, you have to do it on wall time, which is like exceedingly unreliable. It depends on you know what machine you're running on, how busy the machine is, all that stuff. But reduction counting for a, for a certain function, again, within a single process, should be consistent across platforms. So instead of, you know, most performance tests that I've seen now have these like such wildly high margins of errors that they're almost not functional. You know, they'll say like, don't get 50% slower, which is like, oh, great. But with reduction counting, I think we can narrow that margin of error down pretty significantly. There will be some differences between platforms, especially between 32 and 64-bit machines, but you can pretty, pretty narrowly and pretty tightly keep a look on your, your performance for like really, really hot paths in your code to make sure that you're not, as you go down, you're not slowing down your, your app incrementally by accident. So that's something I would love to see after 1.0. That'll hopefully be the 1.1 release, which I don't know, maybe Christmas. Who knows when we'll have time to get around to it. But it actually shouldn't be that hard, which is the other great thing. The, all of that stuff is made so easily available to you. And it's going to be almost the exact same implementation that we have for memory. So it won't be that hard to add once we get 1.0 out. 
but yeah, we're, we're getting close to that. It's a, it's a wonderful project and we've seen it really take off in the last year, especially. I think, I think Ben and Jose used it in their adopting Elixir book. Uh, and that it seems like right after that book came out, the Benchy downloads like skyrocketed. So, uh, and I know a few of the other core team members use, use Benchy a lot in their, their work, both on Elixir itself and on, uh, their, their other projects. So it's getting some great usage and we love working on it. Toby's an awesome, awesome guy to work with. And if anybody wants to contribute, we have open issues, you know, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful project. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned so much working on it too. It's been, it's been really great. So you mentioned um, that that you were using that trace to do the garbage collection thing, and I, I see that you have a, a more recent blog article that covers that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to drop that in the in the notes so people can find that too. So you also mentioned the the looking at reductions as a way of doing uh, more accurate performance testing and in, and getting insight. Could you just help explain what reductions are in the beam so that people can kind of get a better understanding of that? Yeah. So a reduction is, you can think of it as like one reduction is one thing that the virtual machine does. And every time it does a thing, it has a little counter that it increments. It's like, okay, I did one thing, two things, and three things. And it does a certain number of things before it needs to take a little break in the schedule. It's done enough things. I'm time to somebody else and they're going to do a certain number of things. And then I'm going to go to the next person in my queue. And that's how the, uh, the beam, uh, internal scheduler manages, uh, CPU resources allocation is by counting reductions. And that's like the most basic unit of computation in the beam. Um, one reduction. I don't know if it maps directly to one, one beam instruction. That's one of the things I'm actually kind of excited to learn about when I do get to implementing that is, is learning more about how instructions are, or the, the reductions are implemented and, and how those map to the, uh, the code that we're writing. Like in implementing that feature, I'm, I know I'm going to learn so much about that, that little part of the beam. But my understanding is that it's, it's one, one reduction is one basically instruction. I don't know if it's a CPU instruction or a beam instruction, but it's one instruction and it counts that. And that's what, how it uses, it manages its uh, internal scheduler is by reduction counting. So each process gets a certain number of reductions and then the next one, and then it switches back and through back and forth. And that's how it can keep its soft real-time properties is by uh, basically saying, you know, some number of, of reductions and then you take a little break and then the next guy goes for some number of reductions and, then, and so on. One thing that I was curious about was when you adopted Ruby, did you feel the same way about it that you do now about Elixir? Because it, I don't know, I've heard a lot of people talk about Elixir the way you talked about Elixir, and I've heard a lot of people talk about Ruby in the past the way that you mm-hmm. talked about Elixir. And with the the all-in blog post, and I totally get it. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm actually uh, working on a project right now that I'm going to be using um, Phoenix and Vue on. And I'm just, you know, for me, it's more just a learning opportunity. But yeah, I guess I'm curious, you know, is, is this, you just kind of found the next best thing? Or is it, you know, what, what, what was your experience when you adopted Ruby? And how does that compare to when you adopted Elixir? So my first sort of uh, modern programming language, I started programming when I was a kid, took 10 years off to go be an opera singer, which is like a totally different story. And then when I got back into computers, my first sort of modern programming language was Python. And this was six or seven years ago. And Python was fine. I was enjoying writing code again, and it was great. But there wasn't 
a ton of resources for people learning, especially people that didn't have CS degrees. And the community wasn't as vibrant or helpful. And then somebody said, oh, well, you know, maybe you might enjoy this Ruby community. And like, boy, did that community have a lot to offer to people wanting to learn how to code. And especially people that didn't have CS degrees. And the community is really what drew me into Ruby more than anything. They had so many resources. They had so many nice people. They, it was just a wonderful environment for people who really wanted to go like go bananas learning as much as they could. And there was so much out there and so many helpful people. And the, the community infrastructure was so well developed. And that's what really got me into Ruby really hard was the people and the community. And the, you know, I, I was fine at Ruby, but like I said, my, as I started becoming, you know, not so much a beginner and started becoming an intermediate, you know, to advanced Ruby developer, my style of writing Ruby started sort of deviating, like what I liked started deviating from the norm. And I found other great communities in Ruby as well. I found, you know, frameworks like, like Hanami and ROM and, and that more sort of functionally inspired Ruby, which I think is still a really important part of that community. But the looking back on it now, the language wasn't the thing that sold me the most. It was the community. With Elixir, it, the language fits me and the way I like to write code in a way that Ruby did not, or at least the, uh, the sort of... Um, archetypical way that people write Ruby did not fit me. And I tried other languages, you know, I feel like everybody has to know at least a little bit of JavaScript. And I went through a period where I really tried to love JavaScript and it just didn't fit with me. Even though I knew tons of nice people and it was a nice community, the language didn't appeal to me. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that I tried Go and like that community turned me off pretty quick. I was out of there, you know, I didn't last very long in Go world because I asked someone why they didn't have a package manager and because... And then they told me, because you should be able to write everything you need yourself. I said, well, I don't have a CS degree, so I don't, I don't think that's going to fit. Because, uh, like, I don't know crypto, and, like, I'm not a security expert, so I don't think that's going to work too well. And then I found Elixir, and I played around, and the language itself just fit the way I think about code so well to the point where it... Uh, I don't know. It, the, it, I can't, it's sort of unfair to say the language, but the paradigm. So a dynamically typed functional language fit the way that I like to work so well. And that I just, you know, it, it doesn't feel unnatural for me. It doesn't feel like I need to find a way to write the code I want to write in the way I want to write it. It seems like the, the way I want to write the code and the way it's supposed to be written is the same in this case. And, you know, that, it could be that if I learned Clojure instead of Elixir, that I could have had the same experience. I don't know. I can't go back in time. And, and frankly, I'm invested in Elixir now. I'm not going to go to Clojure. <laughs> but I don't know. that It could have been the case that I could have fallen just as deeply in love with Clojure as I, I did with Elixir. I can't say for sure. But the, this paradigm of, of writing code just works so well for me. And all of the other things are awesome too. But like I said, it's, that's the icing on the cake. The availability, the, the concurrency, the, all that stuff is wonderful. Like it, and for a good deal of applications, it's crucial. You need that desperately. But for an even greater deal of applications, you don't need that stuff. You could use Ruby. You know, and, and frankly, when people say like Phoenix is a faster Rails, like the speed on the back end is not what affects your users 90% of the time. It's missing database indexes and N plus one queries and like sending way too much JavaScript over the wire. 
So you could use Ruby and be fine on speed. You can use Elixir and be fine on speed. That's not why I'm using it. I'm using it because I like the paradigm. I like how how it fits my brain, how how I think about code. You know, just sort of it. It's a it's a round peg in a round hole, and it, it feels nice to write Elixir. And I do know a lot of people that have written Ruby for like 10, 12 years at this point, and still feel the way about Ruby that I hope I will feel about Elixir in in another eight, nine years. But yeah, it, it, it just seems to work for me, which is, is lovely. And, you know, I don't want to slag off Ruby. Ruby's still a wonderful language and a wonderful community. They've actually done incredible things for programming as a whole in, in driving, you know, welcoming newcomers, being a very welcoming community. I feel like the, the community of Elixir is, is taken part and parcel from Ruby, which is, is crucial, actually. Like I said, that I think it's one of the most important parts of Elixir is the community that's developed. And a lot of the community norms and standards have come directly from Ruby, which is wonderful. But yeah, getting into Ruby was, it was the community that got me there and the community that made me feel welcome and gave me all the resources I need to learn. And that's, you know, when you have all of that, it's really hard not to love a language when the people behind it and, and uh, evangelizing it are so nice and funny and helpful. So that that was uh, a huge part of Ruby, especially in the beginning of me really enjoying that time. That makes sense. It's just interesting to see how people evolve and what gets them, you know, in, in a yeah. particular area. And so that's kind of what I was interested in was, yeah, basically that progression that you described was, okay, you know, wh- what was it? You know, how did that connect? And, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We're kind of at the end of our time. Was there anything else that we needed to jump on before we get to picks? All right, let's do picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution. Code badges. That's right. You heard me right. Basically, the idea is is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. Mark, do you have some picks for us? I do. All right. This one is super geeky. Okay. Yesterday, a friend shared with me this video. You can put it on, it's on YouTube. I'm going to put it in the, it'll be in the notes. It is Erlang the movie. And <laughs> this is, it, it's like I had to, I kind of had to take pauses while I was watching this because it was like, so, I don't know, to take it in small bites because it was so dry and horrible and funny at the same time. So what it is, is it's a, a video um, made in the, Ericsson Labs. So Ericsson was like, that's where Erlang was developed. And you have the creators like Joe Armstrong is in here and a lot of the other guys. And they're, they're showing how Erlang solves problems and specifically in the telephony systems. Uh, and that's, that's where it was born, right? This is like, you're seeing like a snapshot in time when, when it was born. And, but the, the delivery is so dry. It is so funny and not meaning to be funny, but I just kept cracking up. So that's one. And then uh, another one is I had a friend come over and visit in my house and I'd been playing with a 
you know, retro gaming on a Raspberry Pi. And I, so I pull out my, you know, running some emulators and we pull out some joysticks and we sit down and we're playing some old, like original Nintendo NES system stuff and, and just having a blast, you know, playing these games that uh, I've, you know, haven't touched in years. And so I was just going to give a little uh, shout out to like, you know, you can buy the official Nintendo NES classic. Didn't have some of the games that were most important to me though. So I had to be able to get some, uh, get some on my own. But uh, yeah, just retro gaming. It's fun. Play it with a friend. Just a, a little blast from the past. Those are my two. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? Yeah, I think I'll just share one today. And uh, so as developers, we, we tend to get a little bit obsessive about work and, and, uh, and really, really lose ourselves sometimes in, in the process. And uh, one of those things that I like to do when I want to unwind is to uh, play with Legos. So I bought these these Lego kits. They're they're Todd McFarlane Lego kits. And if you know Todd McFarlane, he's the the creator and 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 illustrator behind um, uh, what is it? Spawn, uh, isn't it? Spawn. Yes, Spawn. Thank you. So he has a store online, and you can buy these on uh, Amazon as well. But they're these uh, South Park Lego kits where you can just create your own little scenes from South Park. And they're pretty freaking awesome. I mean, that's a lot of fun to put together. And at the end of the day, you can just stick it on your shelf and, and look at it. I love it. And, and while I'm talking about that, I might as well share one more passion that I have, which is uh, Funko Pop uh, little toys. The Funko Pop for uh, the ones I have are Bob's Burgers. So, yeah, there you go. Fun- I'm just a whole bunch of toys on my shelf. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Okay, so I have to follow up Mark's pick for Erlang the movie. So Erlang Solutions gave out at Erlang Factory, and I think the, like the Erlang user group is where they gave most of them out. They made posters. Uh, they call them Erlang the movie posters, but they're for various posters. I posted a link of kind of a uh, Harry Potter-themed one, and they're hilarious. I actually badgered someone I know and got copies of all of them, so I have them framed. They're hilarious and amazing. So if you haven't seen them, you should scour the internet and find them all because they're all really funny and they've all got like Joe's picture or Joe's face. And uh, anyway, uh, also Martin Gausby has a MQTT client for Elixir called Tortoise. And he recently tweeted that uh, somebody, somebody mentioning an open source project can, can really help it out. So I figured I'd do that because he's an awesome guy. And uh, I have some uses for MQTT, but not right now. So that's it for me. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to do a pick along the lines of Eric's picks. I've been fussing with my camera. It hasn't been working, but it looks like it's working now. So I don't know if you all can see behind me, but I have a shelf full of stuff as well. Um, I get a box every month called Loot Crate, and it's got all kinds of fun stuff in it. And it's really fun to open. I've been planning on actually starting to open those on my YouTube channel. So if you're interested in that, you can go check it out. I don't have any of those opening up videos out there yet, but I have, I think, two boxes sitting here in my office because my office turned into a mess and they just kind of got put in pile uh, one of the piles. And now that I've cleaned things up, I, you know, I found them. So yeah, I'll probably just wind up setting up a camera and opening them up on YouTube so you can have a look at that. But anyway, they've, they've got stuff from all kinds of fun places. So uh, I'm going to pick that. And then I have taken to listening to books lately, audio books. You know, and I've done this off and on, uh, over the last little while, I tend to 
go on a tear where I listen to a whole bunch of audiobooks and I'll go on another tear where I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts. Right now I'm doing uh, audiobooks and the book that I listened to this week is uh, The One Thing. And it just kind of helps you focus on that thing that's going to make the difference, the, you know, help make it so you don't have to do certain things or that you are going to get ahead or reach your goals and things like that. So anyway, really, really enjoying that book. So definitely check it out. I don't know who the author is offhand. I guess I can open this up. Let's see. It's uh, Gary Keller with Jay Papasan. So anyway, great book. And uh, yeah, I have about an hour left on it. So anyway, uh, Devin, what are your picks? Cool. So the first one I mentioned, I just came on to a new client recently and I tried a new time tracking tool called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. So far, it's been great. It generates nice reports. It's free for solo freelancers. So uh, that's been working really well for me. So I figure I'll share that. The next one is I recently had worked on a project that dealt with some state machines. And in doing that, I went back and reread a little bit of one of my favorite books about computers called Understanding Computation by Tom Stewart, where he basically goes over like the fundamentals of what computation is on like Turing machines and state machines and the Lambda calculus and all that stuff. Uh, all the examples are in Ruby, so it's really easy for most people to understand. And it's a really wonderful book that does a just excellent job of explaining those basics of computation. I, I just, I mean, I found it interesting and helpful, which is like a rare combination in a tech book. Usually they're just helpful, but this was, this one was both like really engaging and really helpful. So I love that book and I want to pick that one. And then my, my non sort of work pick is a movie. Uh, I love movies. Uh, and this is a movie that I saw several months ago, but I still like think about once a week. It, it stuck with me that long called The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook. It's a film in both Korean and English. It is uh, just like mind-blowingly good. All his movies are great. I love many of his movies, but it's it's it, like I, I was literally like screaming at the screen at one point, like, no, like I was so invested in this movie uh, and the characters. It's so beautifully shot and the performances are great. A little bit of warning, like it is extremely sexual. There's a lot of nudity that is an important part of the film, but it is just brilliantly done if you don't have a problem with that kind of thing. Some people do. And it's a little hard to find, but it's on Amazon Prime now. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can stream it on Amazon. It, it, like You couldn't get it in America for the first year after it came out, I think. But uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful movie. All right, good deal. Well, thanks for coming, Devin. I think we've linked to just about everything in your blog about it eight times. So uh, <laughs> I think people should be able to find you online. But yeah, thanks for coming. And uh, we'll wrap this one up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.